<laughs> oh, it's hit. Oh, okay. Well, that means we are live right here in Rocket City Podcast. How you doing, Nathan? I'm doing real well. Um, glad that you are here. This is my uh, buddy, Nathan Sheehan. We are um, going to have a little bit of a conversation. You came to me with an interesting topic, and um, we're going to get into that a little bit later. But first, we want to know a little bit about you. Um, so where are you from, Nathan? I was born in Baltimore, but I like to say I'm from New Orleans. Um, uh, you like to say you're from New Orleans. Yes. Yeah, it's an adoptive home. Okay, okay. So that's where you say when you're going home, that's what you mean. Yeah. All right. So not a lot of ties to Baltimore anymore. Right. All right. So um, I know that you've had a good bit of uh, schooling, and I know I've learned a lot from you just in you know day-to-day conversations. Um, you're always teaching me new things, uh, whether I really want to learn them or not. <laughs> so, um, but I honestly always do. So um, what did you study when you were uh, getting your degrees? Well, I've, uh, I've always been fascinated by history, and then I finally got some credentials for it. Um, got my BA from lovely Northwestern State University in Natchitoches, Louisiana, um, towards the end of my sojourns around that state. Uh, but I've also spent a lot of time, like I worked for state historic sites, national historic sites uh, around the state of Louisiana, um, culminating in hanging out a, r- a lot around New Orleans uh, just before I moved up to Huntsville. So how did you a- actually end up in New Orleans? Um, by choice, eventually. Like, actually, when I first got to New Orleans, or, or when I first got to Louisiana, I didn't like New Orleans all that much. Uh, it wasn't until I had a friend move to New Orleans, and I started ha- visiting with him. And he kind of, um, he showed me how to New Orleans correctly. Um, ah, so not just showing up for Mardi Gras and going home. Right. right. And, you know, just he, he showed a lot of layers to the town. Um, he studied history a bit with me. Also, he, his main thing was anthropology and archaeology. Ah. Um, so he found a lot of really cool stuff um, in that vein around town and around the area. And uh, just kind of but once once I saw that, once I saw more of New Orleans than, you know, the the tourism ads. But I kind of fell in love with it. <clears throat> okay. So um, you said that you worked a little bit with um, national parks and mm. preservation. I remember you telling me a little bit about that. What exactly did you, what were you doing up there again? So there's uh, National Historical Park, Cane River Creole National Historical Park up there in northwest Louisiana that was um, in the middle of this little Creole enclave in what was otherwise pretty much East Texas. Um, and the center of this enclave was a plantation that was owned by the same family for 230 years or something like that. And they just dumped it all, you know, sold it to the Department of the Interior for like $1,000 or something like that. Lock, stock, and barrel. Everything on the property, everything in everything on the property, just an absurd amount of stuff. Is that always an option? Can you just... Whenever you want just to sell all your property, you got a whole bunch of property, or is, is, is Interior always willing to just buy up? Not always, but in this case, this was like what they call a bicentennial farm, which is uh, any you know property owned by the same family for 200 years. Okay. Um, it went back into early, like 
French colonial Louisiana. Um, so there was obvious historical value there. Um, also, they, you know, had the enslaved workers and then later the sharecroppers. And so much of it was still uh, from those people that there was a, an immediate draw to it there as well. There, there was just a lot of opportunity for research, um, the kind of thing they were into. So you're basically, you know, you, you they had all this land and you were just going there and just finding, you know, cool things that were there. Right. Okay. And a lot of it was pretty easy to find. Um, like, just sitting on the shelf still. <clears throat> yeah, literally. Uh, they had the plantation store um, that had opened in like, forget the year exactly, 1818, I want to say. Wow. Um, and was the center of this whole community. Like it was walmart meets the it was their amazon like everything was there the post office um justice of the peace tractor supply groceries everything was this store and when they closed it up they didn't like liquidate supplies they just closed it up and then sold it to the department of the interior so 200 years later. Yeah. So, well, you know, and it kept going in through the 20th century. Okay. Uh, like it ran until 1968 or so. Okay. Um, so, but it was still just a patchwork of beginning with the really simple staple items uh, that a plantation would have needed in the early 18 or yeah, early 1800s, all the way up through the last days of this plantation as a farm. Okay. Cool. Um, so you said you studied, um, mostly anthropology or that's what you loved. History major, anthropology minor. Um, and I had the same guy for anthropology, Dr. Hiram Pete Gregory, uh, taught me my entire minor, just a brilliant guy. Um, shout out Mr. Gregory. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> the, uh, um, he, he enjoyed, you know, he really bridged the discipline. Like, that was one of the great things in, in retrospect that I realized about this little, tiny little school that there are people in Louisiana that don't know about it, you know. Um, oh, okay. But the, there was so much interdisciplinary activity in there, um, like the historians talking to archaeologists, which is actually fairly rare. Um, you, would, you would think not, but... right. Just it's, as an average person, but, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, and they have it, it's it's a fascinating area, and it, it pound for pound, Louisiana just has so much to say about uh, how America really developed. Okay, um, like this little town existed as a black market. That's why the town exists. And it's hilarious to walk around this town today, and it's got, you know, all these good Baptists walking around this town that wouldn't have existed if it weren't for a three-headed black market uh, running from the late 18th century uh, into American days. So people came to New Orleans to get what they couldn't get other places. Right. Um, and so, so Nacogdoches specifically um, was the intersection of the French Red River with the Spanish... Camino Real. Um, Spanish were road people, French were river people, uh, but their you know their uh, masters didn't get along, okay. so they weren't they were forbidden from a lot of trade. But in order to survive in this wilderness, they had to. Plus, you're you know 
couple thousand miles away from uh you know the king's knowing right you know who's doing what so so you had um the french growing the vegetables the spanish uh with the cattle and they would trade that but where it really came in was the caddo indians the spanish were forbidden from uh trading especially firearms with the native population the french i mean there were some of those restrictions but they were already kind of off the reservation anyway so they didn't particularly care about those restrictions so they got all the really good stuff that the natives were able to make and these guys were leatherworking wizards um so they got a lot of really good stuff that then they were able to trade with the spanish also but the spanish weren't able to admit to a lot of it so if you just look at the historical record the spanish uh, governors talk about privation and want and famine and just misery but if you go jump in the dirt you find a lot of really cool stuff and you know kind of the knee-jerk reaction would be well ignore the written stuff but no you put the two together and you learn a lot about these people uh motivations and um what they were actually doing and uh, you called them the, the the native people what what did you refer to them as caddo caddo um, yeah so uh that was north west louisiana um now it goes uh, there's a, a the caddo can be found up in um oklahoma um, but like Natchitoches is a Caddo word and it's one of my favorite things. It is the epitome of Creole because it is the American pronunciation of the, no, yeah, the American pronunciation of the French spelling of the Spanish rendering of a Caddo word. And that kind of brings us to why, you know, you said you love New Orleans so much, not just from living there, but as a city as itself, because you feel like it really represents um, kind of America as a whole, because it's just such a conglomerate of every single different country coming together and working together and actually, you know, making it work. Right. And, and you know, they didn't do it just, it, it, it wasn't just this utopian handholding. There was plenty of struggle uh, fighting through uh, arguments and intentions and things like that. But the outcome was this wonderful, dirty, fantastic city. Um, just, you know, the people uh, that, that's maintained the same kind of soul, same kind of set core for 300 years now, um, regardless of all these massive influxes from all over the world. <clears throat> Yeah, um, so you said that it that it's it's been growing a lot. It's still is it still growing? I know that you know after the um, you know Katrina um, ac- you know incident there that uh, I assume that there would be probably a little bit of uh, harder was, times now. There was a major you know evacuation. Um, there's still plenty of a uh, New Orleans diaspora uh, all over the place. Uh, especially like Houston became 20% New Orleans in uh, 2006. And a lot of them haven't made their way back, but there is a significant amount that have. And um, the new immigration problem that New Orleans has is uh, something they haven't really dealt with in quite some time, which is wealthy people, people of means, 
uh, that hasn't really been a thing since the early American days. That so back when those people on that uh, plantation we were talking about earlier that you were working on, right, would be the you know the last time that we had a lot of wealthy people there where they owned all this land, right, and uh, now they're selling it off, and you know now they're now they have this influx of, of and there, there's some pushback uh, from the locals. I hesitate to call them natives. Not sure if there's <laughs> such a thing as New Orleans, in the New Orleans, but. Um, because they're kind of, you know, do, changing the face of it, but it's to what they think the face is. Um, it's, it's, it's a new version of, a, of the same issue that they've had, um, at least for as long as it's been an American city. Yeah, so the, way, the fact that you said that, like, you don't like to call people that live there, you know, necessarily natives. Um, I kind of always... That's always a thing that I've always thought about is, is, you know, people call you a native to this place or that place. But, you know, if you say that, you know, my heritage is from, you know, Germany or from Ireland or that kind of stuff, you know, it, it only always goes back so far. Right. So everybody has always moved from somewhere. And if they, if you, if you say that I am German, you know, they only lived in Germany for so long before they came to America. So when people ask me, I just say, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> um, like, what are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm here. Right. Um, Present. I'm, yeah. So um, I'm right now when I'm in America. So uh, and, I guess. You and, know. and, you know, I, I can especially relate to this because um, I moved so much that, like, New Orleans was the first place I ever even called home. Like, I didn't have a concept of that. Um, so the reason I... I learned as much and i i'm still somewhat obsessed with baltimore is that's where my dad grew up so those were the stories i heard so you know that that was kind of where i can where i considered sheehan central because after that we moved you know every two or three years for most of my life uh sometimes less so i didn't really have that concept of a home of where i'm from uh until there was somewhere i wanted to be from oh Okay, so um, you said we, we, we wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the immigration, you know, moving um, a recent influx of the wealthy people into New Orleans. Um, you know, we wanted to talk a little bit more about, uh, about kind of where all immigration, you know, started from. You know, obviously, America is a country of immigrants. And, um, you know, you have, you've you talked to me a little bit about that and um, some interesting topics and ideas about, you know, what exactly, where it all started from, where we are going with it today and um, that kind of stuff. So, right. And, uh, you know, most importantly, how we've dealt with it before, um, how we, how Americans have viewed it before. Um, how do you think that we have dealt with it in the past? Getting used to it. Like, um that there is so much more movement now, um, just generally speaking, uh, in in the states than there have been, and it is just a matter of scale. Like, when do you think the United States got to a hundred million people as a population? When do I think? Yeah. Oh, um, maybe eighteen. 18- Zero zero. Nineteen eighteen. A hundred and what forty 
135 years after uh, running the British out of Yorktown. It took us 135 years to get to 100 million. When did we hit 200 million? Well, okay, if we were in 19... What was it again? 1918. So 1918. 135 years to get to 100 million. All right. Um, see, I said 1800, and I, you gave me a face, so I, I, I went too low. Um, <laughs> apparently, I didn't pay attention. How to, long I, did it take us to get our second 100 million? Second 100 million, I'm going to guess maybe another 15 years. 35. So 1953. Okay, a little bit longer. 300 million took us another 27 years. So that 135 to get to 100 million 70 years later we were at 300 million wow just exponential growth that nobody saw coming um and uh i don't i still don't think uh, our infrastructure was ready for it or has really thoroughly adjusted to it but um so so the the Number of people expanded exponentially. The ability, or the ability for these people to move around, uh, expanded exponentially, and to do so kind of voluntarily, because there had been migrant populations around the U.S. since before there was a U.S., but now it's you know seeking better opportunities rather than you know there's absolutely nothing here. I'm going to go somewhere else. Um, improving your lot rather than hoping to find one. Um, and this massive ex uh, exponential increase in population also has affected how we deal with people crossing that big border um, in a lot of ways. Because for that first 140 years, uh, the federal government didn't really care about immigration. That was the state's problem. That was that individual city's problem. Um, and for a lot of cities, it was a problem. And I'm going to go back to New Orleans a lot because that's, uh, that, that's my area of uh, expertise, yeah. such as it is. Um, so it became American around 1814. And it became a work depot. It was known... Uh, at least in, across the Atlantic, as uh, they wanted to do a lot of internal improvements. Um, and this really, you know, Europe was kind of busy with the whole Napoleon thing still. Uh, but once that ended, especially for the Irish, we had a um, influx of people looking for work in New Orleans. New Orleans still hadn't adjusted to being American yet. Uh, so you have Irish and German and Italian just pouring in, and they haven't kind of figured themselves out yet. Um, and that made a very precarious situation. And the way they became um, integrated into the population was uh, initially as kind of a, uh, a slur was the Irish vote that and stop me when this sounds familiar, that, you know, they'll hijack our elections. Oh. Um, I'll stop you there. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that that's whatever. And at first, you know, the, the um, parties of the day, neither of them really wanted the Irish vote. Um, but then Andrew Jackson 
started to run for president and he decided we'll take him um and that's when the irish kind of started to become a uh an irish community well uh, it's a vote all the same so and he and obviously he saw that and right. um you know we see that today when um people are you know appealing to different uh nationalities and that kind of stuff to where you know he obviously knew that he could you know probably end up winning if he just you know showed a little bit of interest in these uh these people so one of my favorite things to do is to um look at all of the newspapers the library of congress has done a spectacular job of chronicling and digitizing a lot of 19th century newspapers uh around the country and like new orleans in the 1840s had over a dozen newspapers uh and they had conversations with each other the newspapers had conversations with other newspapers yeah so in what way you you would you know be um that there was no assumption of objectivity uh for them um so you know you you would see something like our friends at the gazette said in their issue of the whatever date and then the, ne- the next paper is like no we didn't <laughs> right and so it's this this back and forth and uh it really came to a head during this this jacksonian period um one of the things i came across was john randolph of roanoke a proper bona fide founder right um said something uh on, on the floor of the Senate, the U- United States Senate, that uh, you know, referring to the the Irish as the uh, pitiful Lazaroni of Ireland, vomited forth upon our shores. Um, and yes, it may be humanity to take them in, but he would make it death to do so. Um, wow! <laughs> and all this just obviously you know spiteful rhetoric and then my, my favorite part is the next issue when he tries to take it all back you know that was all out of context oh yeah and then he tried to get the press ejected from the senate i actually thought that was kind of a more of a recent thing where you were able to go back and apologize for something you clearly said right um i didn't realize that <laughs> it's, yeah, that it's went in back the so finest far. tradition of american politics oh. well that's comforting to know <laughs> all that. the way back to a guy that signed the declaration of independence oh okay um but this also gives you an idea of how you know of what the conversation was about immigration in 1828 um you know that it was very similar uh that there was the one group <clears throat> that was happy to you know take all comers and then there was the other that uh, wanted just to close it down. Um, and, you know, what, what's funny there is just the fact that they thought it was a problem in 1828. This was 15 years before the Great Famine. Uh, the numbers shot up unbelievably. Um, you know, as many as came in in the 1820s and 30s, two to three hundred percent more came in in the 1840s um and hit crisis levels and so you you saw this situation of people um like at that that plantation i worked um the the national national park they had grown up speaking french like that this place was entirely french here in america yeah they they were okay in northwest louisiana um speaking french 
learning French. Um, and then they grow up, and in the 18, late 1840s and early 1850s, they join the Know Nothing Party, the American Party, which was America first, which was, you know, uh, very, very, one of their primary tenets was to close off immigration. You know, we're full up. Uh, so they thought in 1850. Um, and so the, the idea of native changed. I wonder how long you, like, even all the way back then, how long you had to be here before you were able to start saying, nah, no more people. It's like, you know, was it five years? <laughs> you know, five years you've been here and you're like, all right, well, I've been here for five years and that person, he can't come in. Right. So, so th- this is like, you know, maybe the third generation of his family. Um, the first generation in American Louisiana, um, deciding we're, we're done here. Oh. Um, so it's, it's the opinion of Americans has always been the same towards immigrants. Um, they were worried about the same things that people that worry about immigration now, uh, have in mind, you know, jobs political um, upheaval, mm-hmm. you know, hijacking politics. That's a major worry, right? Because it's, you know, running so smoothly. Um, <laughs> and hijacking the culture. Because, you know, uh, even though uh, New Orleans was better suited to receive a bunch of Irish Catholics, the rest of America... Not so much, um, and they were concerned about what all, all these papists would do to our common American morals. Um, and it's just slightly different terms for exactly the same uh, buzzwords we have now. Um, and it became it was a major issue, uh, and always has been. And the way they it, it's just a matter of what the immigrants wound up doing is just waiting it out. Um, making themselves not, so, not as much useful as, um, as almost uh, can't th- th- not thought of, just uh, the, the, uh, almost like furniture. <laughs> okay, yeah, they're just trying to be in the background so that, you know, if as long as they're not doing anything that's noticing, you know, they're getting noticed that, you know, they can just hopefully wait it out until the next group comes along and we start disliking them right. and, you know. And then we can join in. Yeah. yeah and okay. that's actually what the Irish did, sadly, uh, to a large extent. Um, they, w- so, so Jackson was a Democrat. And then, so they all became Democrats because that's how they were able to uh, uh, integrate themselves, you know, to to get some political power was these guys were offering them votes. Cool. Um, But then the Democrats changed after Jackson. um, Or their focus changed. You got to Calhoun and, um, you know, the compromises, over slavery and gag rules and things like that. And that became the point of the Democrats. And that's kind of a a large degree of how the Irish became white. Um, Because that, you know, 
they were immigrants, and that was the point. They were Catholics, and that was the point. But then once they started kind of campaigning for what their party was uh, proud of at the time, then they became actually accepted and even celebrated. Um, but what's really great is how they got into positions of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, was through the police. And uh, so they started working in the police first. Right. And then slowly worked their way up. That's how they eventually became mayors and things like that. Okay. Uh, was because, you know, at first the, 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 ori- the early ir- idea of the Irish immigrant was a digger. Uh, those internal improvements in the 1820s, digging out canals, uh, you know, backbreaking, really dangerous work uh, that they were all happy to do. And um, it just kept being jobs other people didn't want to do. And one of those was police. Um, and there were a lot of reasons for that. Like, you know, one of the, the funnier images of, well, funny in retrospect, probably terrifying at the time, is um, private fire brigades and brawls and riots would break out over who gets to fight this particular fire. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that was a thing. Yeah. So so we didn't, th- this was not, you know, a taxpayer. Right. Uh, tax paid, you know, thing going on. We actually just had people that just wanted to fight fires. The fire brigade. Yep. They, That's what they did. Where, so would they, would they go there? <laughs> would they, would they put out your fire and then, and then stick their hand out and ask for some money? Yes. Guessing that they saved your money right. from the fire. <laughs> Assuming. Yeah. 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 Um, and if they didn't, then. So, so wow. So there's, there's pictures of, of men fighting in front of fires. Yeah, I mean, it'd be more like, you know, cuttings rather than pictures. But yes, there are descriptions in, in, news, in newspapers okay. of the day of firefighters fighting firefighters. <laughs> <laughs> firefighters fighting fire. Fires. Yeah. Fighters. Okay. Um, <clears throat> that's amazing. But that's um, how they got themselves, uh, how they became integral parts of the town um was uh, doing jobs like that and uh, as those job as you know the the municipal governments evolved so did their positions that they were already in and that gained more power that gained more prestige and they became just accepted um especially uh after the civil war um and that's what, you know, the federal government started getting involved in immigration and they weren't worried about Irish anymore. They so were, so Irish people really were our first time that we ever were really worried about immigration. Were they the first? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's in, in that scale, absolutely. Like, yeah, all over the country we were worried about Irish immigrants. Because, you know, most of the... the it, People that think of Irish immigration don't think of New Orleans. You think of New York and Boston, places like that. Seemed like the easier place to get to from right. Ireland. Which it actually wasn't. Oh. Um, the, the way they got to New Orleans was because of the cotton trade. Oh. So the, the, you know, a major cotton trading partner was the British. And uh, they had, you know, the north of Britain at the time was so much textile mills um that was their main thing and so they would get a lot of the cotton from the south 
particularly from Savannah and New Orleans. So these uh, ships would be laden down with cotton, get over there, and need ballast. And Ireland was in a recession, um, and people were looking to get out. And so the way they got out was by serving as ballast. Okay. For these ships on the way back, just dump them out on the piers, wish them luck, and fill up with cotton again. They called them coffin ships. Why were they called coffin ships? Well, first off, I mean, a ballast hold is not a pleasant place to Okay, well, hold on. It. What, what, wait, what exactly is ballasting? It's what holds, you know, the... the what holds the ship's position, um, you know, prevents it from rolling too much and can affect the steerage of the, the old sailing ships. Oh, okay. So it's, it's just weighting down that ship. That's all they needed was weight. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so this was not only a way to get ballast, but also to get a little bit of a fare from them. Oh, they were paying. Okay. Yeah. And, okay. and you know, it was relative to the day, nothing. A couple of from, potatoes. From Liverpool to New Orleans uh, or Savannah or wherever. So they had already immigrated over to at least England. Well, so, and Liverpool was an easy place to get to from Ireland. Yeah. Just um, a swim. Right. <laughs> Not quite. But yes, essentially, relatively speaking to, yeah. you know, hanging out in Ireland. Um, so, yeah, they'd, they'd make that little bit of a, a hop across the pond to, to Liverpool, then get on these ships and uh, make their way to the new American city of New Orleans um, and start digging ditches there. And <laughs> what wound up happen, happening was the people that hopped off the, the hopped out of those ballast holds then wound up being the people that would fill them back up with cotton. Oh. Uh, so it was this weird lower class kind of horizontal uh, um, monopoly. But they wouldn't need the ballast on the way back because they had all the cotton. Because of the cotton, yeah. Okay, okay. And they were crazy with that stuff. There were these guys called screwmen, and they would have these yard-long metal screws, and you would twist the screw that would compact the cotton bales get to squeeze as much cotton into these things as possible. And they did it so tightly that in some cases the cotton said no and just sprang back to its original size. And you don't want to be in that hold when that happens. Um, so there was a, that was a, one of the most dangerous jobs in America in 1825. That's a way to go to get um, squashed by cotton. <laughs> um. And so they could make a relatively decent living until they died of it. Ah. Um, but yeah, so cotton that way, Irish this way. Um, and it became this thing called the Irish Channel in New Orleans. Uh, just uh, almost, like, it was almost a ghettoizing of the Irish uh, in New Orleans. But uh, it was that community that they built up that way that was able to receive all the famine refugees. Um, 20, 25 years later. Um, and ultimately, like, you know, one of the main things that came out of the, the, the city was so much better for it in the long run because the, the things that came out of it were St. Patrick's church in, uh, in New Orleans, which was, 
uh, again, a very different situation than the Irish met in a lot of other American cities that weren't so much Catholic and didn't really have that background, um, except Baltimore, oddly enough. Um, Bringing it back to Baltimore. <laughs> there's actually been a weird little inter- interaction, intercourse between Baltimore and New Orleans for the last 250 years. All the uh, way up until you. Pretty much, yeah, and, <laughs> and beyond. Uh, <laughs> but um, St. Patrick's was, you know, the, the, the Irish population became prominent enough that they actually got their own parish and um, their parish church, and it became the center of that community, um, even once the Irish Channel became not so much Irish, you know, even when the, the Germans and Italians started moving into it later on in the century, St. Patrick's Church was still the center of that community. Um, and uh, the first statue, the first statue of a woman in the United States is a statue of an Irish woman in New Orleans. Oh, wow. When was that erected? Um, must have been the 1850s. Can't think of the year offhand, um, but she was um, a baker's wife that wound up inheriting his bakery after his death and turned it into an orphanage. Oh wow! Uh, and she became uh, just kind of a, a the patron saint uh, of a lot of dispossessed people around. Got it right there. Eighteen. 18- Oh, that's when she passed away. Margaret. Hoffrey. Hoffrey. Okay. Oh. But wow. yeah, it um, became very important to the, the sort of dispossessed around New Orleans. So this is when they started becoming, you said, eventually they were praised and, you know, happy that they were there. Right. So this and is later on into that. <laughs> yeah. And usually it takes a common enemy <laughs> uh, to move on to the next one. And who was you know? this next common enemy? Um, well, first it was the slaves. That, that's who, who the, how the Irish kind of ingratiated themselves to the, the solid South in the 1850s was uh, this, uh, calling for the renewal of the transatlantic slave trade um, and things like that. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, but but that that was again just slogans that gave them a sense of power. Um, and then after the war, when the federal government started getting interested in immigration, their first order of business was to stop the Chinese from coming to California. Mm. And that became the rallying cry of the nativists uh, around America was i guess we stole it first i don't know um yeah definitely although we sort of stole it third out there but anyway um <laughs> yeah so so that the chinese exclusion acts in the 1870s uh and by that time the irish influx had died down considerably and you said that um that this was the first time that the federal government had actually stepped in right. was during the end of the Irish well, so immigration? That, that, that's just a coincidental thing, yeah. So, so by the time I, Irish uh, immigration had calmed down, um, then, you know, we had a lot of Americans moving out west 
um, especially in the years following the Civil War. Um, and so we had these, the, the uh, Chinese coming from across the Pacific and then Americans moving into their uh, property out there in California. Um, and, you know, that led to a lot of tension out there and ultimately the passing of exclusion acts um, that initially banned, just said, no more Chinese. That was the first exclusion. Yeah. Oh. Um, but they still didn't do much. Like, it would show up every 15, 20 years and either relax a previous act or exclude a new bunch. Um, and this was all the way up into um, World War II era. Just stayed on that kind of clock. Um, you know, getting up to Coolidge um, in 1924. Um, just as, uh, another, you know, we're full up, we're done. Um, and eventually that was relaxed into quotas. Uh, you know, each country could, we could allow so many from each country. And that's still a thing today. Yeah. Um, I feel yeah. like, you know, you, you once, it's like, it's like they all moved to one central area. And then, you know, once they spread out and they got a little bit more land, then we're like, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe we still do have a little bit more land here and uh, maybe a little bit more resources. And um, I feel like that's probably why after just a couple of years, they do come to that conclusion of, you know, oh, well, maybe we can let a couple more people in because right. there is still a lot of land here. I mean, you know, absolutely. Even just where we're from, you know, you know, you can there's, you can drive for a couple hours south and, you know. See nothing but cows. You know, <laughs> there's uh, just plenty of farmland, and um, you drive down I-59 in Mississippi. All you see is trees. Yeah, you hear the rumor of towns. Let's keep those trees, though. Let's keep the trees. <laughs> Let's start at the grasslands first, and then you know maybe we'll move to cutting down trees. Um, you know, hopefully we'll keep those up for a little while. We right. need those a little bit. But yeah, um, and it's it's an interesting thing though that that. The tension we have now is the reason the, the reason we think we have immigration. Um, kind of, kind of the the um, driving force behind the immigration we allow uh, is what the argument is now. Uh, whether it's people that can afford it, people that um, before they arrive are able to quantifiably improve our situation um, whether it be through you know just skills or education um, mm -hmm. or things like that or what we've had for as long as the government uh, almost as long as the government's been involved has been the, the the primary objective has been keeping families together that makes um, sense because uh, a lot of our uh, another reason that the feds weren't so interested in immigration for a long time is the concept of birds of flight, um, that people would come over here, you know, gather up a little bit of stash of money and then go home. That's usually not the, not the case though. Right. It was for a while. Oh, okay. Um, uh, that was the idea, uh, for a while, uh, or that was the assumption, uh, of course, this was during a time when it was a lot easier to, you know, just hop a riverboat and disappear somewhere in the wilderness. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm not staying that long. <laughs> Where you can find me. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, but uh, so, so went from that to keeping families together, which is arguable as a motive force, uh, or at least from our perspective, um, to now what we're trying to focus on uh, being people that can uh, immediately, obviously contribute. Okay. Um, And the issue is, uh, because, you know, even like Britain, a place like that, has a quota. There, you know, once we've given out so many visas, rather, to um, people from the UK, that's it. And as we get, or as we, as, Restrictions get stronger as penalties get stricter. Um, we're going to wind up in, in a, a very new situation of alienating the people we're trying to attract. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I, the fact that you said that, um, how we can afford, you know, pe- we'll take in people that can afford to move over. Um, it's, it's not very cheap. You know, I, I've just for you know, just for fun looked at what the um, what it would take to move to Canada, and it is hard. It's not easy. Okay, um, you have to get you know work visas, and you have to stay there for a certain amount of time. It's not just like yeah, I've got you know, I got five thousand dollars to buy my citizenship. I'm just going to come on over. You know, it's 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 complicated. It's very hard, and um, you know, especially you know, just in Canada's case, you know, I haven't looked at many other countries what it would take to move there, but. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty hard. And to say nothing of like renouncing citizenship. Have you seen anything about that? I have not. No. The fees to renounce citizenship have increased. They've, uh, at least double every four years or so. Um, just for, for, is that everywhere? Is for that renouncing U S citizenship. Okay. Because, you know, as it is... Um, you it, can pay to renounce your citizenship? Yes. Do you have to leave if you renounce your citizenship? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that, you can't just claim a sovereign state right. in, in, you know, uh, Yeah, some in your people house. tried that a few years ago. It didn't work well. Um, didn't end well. Where did they get deported to? Um, or so, <laughs> <laughs> what happened to them? I'm talking about a... a uh, I'm talking about a, about 150 years ago. Oh, okay, uh, okay, yeah. okay. Um, but yeah, so, so you know the people that say if you don't like it, leave. Well, you got 30 grand. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, hard. Uh, and that that is a thing that that it, it's a call that has rung down the centuries of American practical politics. Um, but it's also. so wrong-headed um in so many different kinds of ways so right now it's not too much you can renounce your citizenship for twenty three hundred fifty dollars <laughs> i mean that's a, that's still a chunk of change but you know i don't know why you know if, if you're going to go to another country you know and live there i feel like dual citizenship is you know wouldn't be too bad i mean but but what 
why 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 would they make it this hard? Why would they make it that difficult to uh, to renounce citizenship? What what do they get out of your maintaining citizenship? Um, money. Yeah. Um, that's what they're concerned about. Is losing my tax paying how much I pay in taxes every single year. Right. Which is more than that. More than twenty three hundred dollars. So um, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And, and you know that this is. But even if I'm in a different country and I'm earning money in a different country, how do that? How does that play play into? If I still have citizenship here, do I have to pay for that citizenship yeah. if I'm somewhere else, living yeah. somewhere else? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if, if you are a U.S. national, that they expect you to keep those cards and letters coming in. Oh, so so they're they're asking for taxes even when I'm making money somewhere else yeah. and spending my money somewhere else. Okay. Well, it's not as much as I thought it was going to be. I mean, you, you said it was, you know, doubling and tripling. I was thinking, like, I don't know, ten grand. You well, know, there was so. a, a time when it was nothing. I mean, not literally nothing. There's always going to be some kind of fees for five dollars, uh, something like that, right? For for uh, shipping and handling, but um, but you know that that is so much more than it was even twenty years ago. Okay. Uh, and they keep just arbitrarily raising it. No, that's probably something that doesn't make the headlines very often either. Not, not much. No. Yeah. Which is kind of ironic considering how much you hear. If you don't like it, leave. Yeah. Right. And here's the process for leaving, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. That's something. Hmm. That's something else. So if I, if I do move to a different country and I decide that I don't care, about denouncing my citizenship. I'm never going back. What does it matter to me? You know, I wonder what the repercussions are of me never paying any more taxes or trying to keep my citizenship or never denouncing it or anything. Right. Um, I I would expect in those cases, um, you you want to be aware of the extradition treaties. (laughs) That's true. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because if if we're not worried about expenses, then they're def- definitely not worried about you know the expense of bringing you back, um, <laughs> which is probably more than two thousand dollars. You'd oh, think, yeah, yeah. But you know we're we're not about the the money. We're about the principle. Ah, okay, okay, okay. So, um, so the situation with immigration is on the kind of micro scale has pretty much always been the same um, in American history. Um, can't really speak to any others, but the, the, what has changed has been the scale. Um, not, not even necessarily the, the, as far as the numbers coming in, but what those numbers meant once they got here. Um, It made, uh, you know, in the early 19th century, so much of what is now America wasn't. Um, And especially in a place like New Orleans, you didn't necessarily stop there, particularly if you could avoid stopping there and, you know, just make your way into the interior um, and just find your fortune that way that was uh, uh 
decision a lot of people made, but those that didn't have that ability to make the decision um, are the ones that I think have the most in common with our current, the present crisis. Um, is you know the 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 refugees because uh, that that is most certainly what they were, um, and that's what we see decried across the globe now. You know, there's a migrant crisis in Europe that's breaking up European governments, uh, not breaking them up so much as changing their faces. Yeah, you know, um, and it's it's the same cries we've heard for hundreds of years um and it's just a matter of, I, I think of uh, when we say something like if you don't like it leave you know the, the the fantastic thing about america is first off you can leave where you are <laughs> um you know there is still a significant uh, freedom of movement it still ain't cheap but um, there is still that possibility and there are so many places to go um, and that this just leads to what is you know what what do we value what are our common american morals um insofar as they can exist and it should be the idea that um There is, no, you know, you've heard the phrase two Americas. Have you, have you no, I ever heard that used? It, well, it, it was a, especially a thing in the recent elections, you know, the, the two Americas of red and blue. But yeah, there's okay. no such thing as two Americas. There are millions of Americas interacting hundreds of times every day and generally for mutual benefit. What do you mean by that, by millions of Americas? That the, the basic... Um, unit of measurement um, in America has been the individual. And um, it's been a struggle, but the point has been coexistence. The point has been, uh, you know, the, the, the French and Spanish and Natchitoches trying to figure out how to make it out in the wilderness um, rather than, uh, you know, following along with their political masters in shunning and ignoring and uh, hating the other. They just work together yeah, to get along. Right. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I can definitely see where, you know, it's always, it's always just a, a problem and not necessarily a problem, but always it's something that's talked about as a problem and how we always end up making it work out. And you know, I guess we could get to a point where, um, you know, there isn't always a uh, easy solution, and but I think that there always can be a solution, and um, it's just kind of, you know, you, you, once they're once somebody's, you know, here, you know, and you know, the, if, if they can't go back home to at least a safe place, you know, it's kind of just having to figure out what to do now. And like you said, if, if it's it's when they don't have anything obvious of worth to bring to um the table immediately you know it's like you're just just shunned and you know taken away it's 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 frustrating mm -hmm. and you know it, it's a question of 
what kind of, I mean, what kind of nation do you want to be, you know, how do you want to be seen? What kind of uh, people do you want to be? Um, and, you know, the, the, the way, the, uh, the, the, way my, my, the, the Irish in New Orleans made it was by a community willing to take them in. And that is a, another fantastic common theme in American history that regardless of what the newspaper headlines said and regardless of what the um, political slogans were, there has always been a community willing to take them in. Um, and as long as that keeps going and, you know, one of the, the significant challenges now is we don't really have the freedom to do that. Um, the, the, anyone that is interested in taking them in can't, um, the, the the treatment of them is so symbolic now rather than humane uh, or on the individual level um, that uh, even those that might be uh, inclined towards such charity and even, you know, to the point of self-sacrifice don't really have the ability to do so uh, and get turned away. And uh, that is, uh, that that's, a definite change. Yeah, it's like um, like you could get possibly charged for like harboring a fugitive or you know that kind of stuff. Like if I just wanted you know to take in some um, some illegal Switzerland people, right. you know, and uh, you know they they wanted to come over, and um, they heard the uh, the ski slopes were great here, and um, you know they wanted to, they wanted to get their ski on, so right. um, <laughs> they came here and you know their visa expired their or visa, something their, like yeah. that. Yeah. And well, they never had one in the first oh, okay. place. Well, then, yeah, they came over on a, uh, on a uh, on a barge, <laughs> in, a, in a shipping container that was modified. And um, I wanted to take them in and say, you know, um, you guys don't have enough money to go home, and um, you know, you got done skiing, and now you just they decided they wanted to stay. And you know, I could if I you know took them in, had enough money to pay for all of them, and you know, just took care of them, and eventually they ended up you know, contributing well to society, I could still get in trouble, yep. you know, no matter, you know, how much it ended up maybe in the end game, positively impacting, you know, my, uh, small town or, you know, my area, um, it wouldn't matter. And I could get charged and, and that's just, that just scales up. Right. So it's like, you know, if a town, you know, here in America wants to, you know, open their borders and say, anybody can come in and anybody can do it, you know, at a federal level, it can still be a problem. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, and it's weird to live in one of these kind of hinges of history. Um, you know, seeing how we're the the new criteria affecting an old issue, um, and how we're going to ultimately, uh, and I guess not ultimately, but immediately. Uh, deal with it, handle it. Uh, it's important and it's kind of, kind of, uh, scary. Like, you know, th this is the kind of thing I would rather study mm -hmm. than experience. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I've got a weird optimism about it. Me too. I don't think it's weird. I think it's good. <laughs> I think that, uh, I think that you should, should try to stay, you know, positive about it. And, um, you know, it's like, you, 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 it's, it's not an easy solution and there isn't just one answer. 
for for any of this um you know it just it just takes time you know how long did it take for you said that when they first started coming over it was you know around that um you said that it was around eight uh 18 you know 1815 1810 right so so the the the, there was an old irish before Amer- before New Orleans became an American city, the 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 major times of Irish immigration, eighteen twenty to eighteen thirty five ish, okay, was a major, uh, what was considered a major flood of Irish to our shores. But and then there were the famine, and then it took another you know a hundred years, and then we elect an Irish Catholic president, right? So um, you know, and you know, some people see him as you know one of our best presidents, you know, um, and, you know, or at least very inspirational, at least got us to the moon. <laughs> and, um, so, uh, it just takes a little bit of time and ends up, you know, positively impacting, you know, America as a whole. And that, that's, that tends to be the, the story with, with immigrants in America. Um, you know, virtually any, um, nationality that had a major influx to America has a similar story of being <clears throat> unwanted and considered the unwashed horde uh, when they first arrive and then ultimately being, you know, mayor and president. Um, that that tends to be how it goes. And uh, it so, so the most distri- the the most disturbing thing to me is the fact that people think all this stuff is new mm-hmm. that we've never dealt with it before that you know it's an unprecedented problem um when you can it, it doesn't take a lot to see how see what's happened similarly in the past how we've dealt with it and how we've profited from it yeah because um, that's all it's you know the the, the no we're, we're not going to find um the perfect people uh to come in but uh you can't guarantee outcome but you can guarantee opportunity mm-hmm. you know well yeah definitely i like that um so i feel like i've uh learned a good bit about all this i feel like uh yeah definitely how it's never been a new thing it's always been a thing america is a country of immigrants we have you know very few native americans left don't call them indians <laughs> funny story about that I, I, my anthropological uh studies led me to uh to deal with a lot of um indian people uh, around louisiana and uh particularly like Tunica Biloxi and Caddo. Um, and so I was kind of walking on eggshells the first time I was at one of these, um, we called it basket days, where the, the um, crafts, for people from the, the, one of the, the nearby tribes would come through and sell off their crafts uh, at, a, at the university. And uh, I said something about Native Americans, and they said, oh, no, 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 no. White man, you don't get to make yourself feel better. You can call us Indians. <laughs> oh, wow. Really? That's surprising <laughs> to me. Because um, that's something I'm always frustrated with. I guess, you know, maybe... 
I don't feel like I'm trying to make myself feel better. It's just confusing to me. It's it's honestly just confusing because if you if if somebody says, you know, Indian American, right. it's somebody from India. But if I say American Indian, <laughs> it's you a don't native, picture it's a, an American person in like. Uh, in like Del- uh, Delhi or something like that. Yeah, it's it's, and 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 even when I was in um, uh, DC recently, they had the the they. I feel like it's a kind of a newer museum where it was the Indian American Museum or the Native American Indian Museum, <laughs> and we we all call it that. My my, I even had a you know history teacher that was would say the very very <coughs> smart dude, very, you know politically correct with a lot of things and but he said you know we we're going to talk about native americans just but just to make it easier we're just going to say indian and um man does that get confusing because even just now when you said you said i felt like you were walking on eggshells and you said native american you know and and they they said that when you said when i was with indian people i thought you were going with i was with people from india so it's (laughs) like i I wish we could all get on the same page from here we knew we weren't in india (laughs) I, I know that maybe the they, they, they feel like we're trying to make ourselves feel better. I feel like it's just less confusing. And um, let's just stop calling them Indians. Goodness sakes. <laughs> like, we we have people from India here. You know, we yeah, yeah. If, we, if we didn't have people from India living here, I probably wouldn't care. But <laughs> um, it's just confusing. Um, so, And I don't think American Indian is much better, like, as far as clearing things up. No. Like we said. Indian yeah. American gives you a, a picture in your head, but right. American Indian gives you another picture. Ooh. All right. Completely uh, unrelated, too. Um, but, yeah. It, it's... Uh, jumped out a little rabbit hole for a second. There. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've just been had that on my heart for a while, and I just needed to get it off. So, um, I, I yeah, I've been mean. I've been just want, wanting to say that. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, back to... Uh, but, you know, as as may be evident, I, I am for immigration at all times. Um, you know, I, I what I can't stand about the the borders we get used to is that they don't exist for any particular reason. Yeah, that mean, we can really quantify. You mean you like know? state borders? Yeah, county um, borders. You know, we had nothing to do with them. Um, At least the people living today. Right. Yeah. You know, that there's that entire series of how the states were made or how the states got their shapes or, you know, something uh-huh. like Mostly that. rivers, right? <laughs> um, if it's not a river, it's a straight line. And it's it, it just... Uh, I, I prefer things kind of organic. Yeah. Um, and the the lines we have now and that we so that that you know we're so inclined to so staunchly defend um are arbitrary mm. um in so many ways um it's just a i i, I think it's a, a strange measure a strange kind of unit of measurement uh to to base a world view on you know um like I, I don't think uh, that there's this guy Stephen Davies. Uh, he, he's a historian that uh, works at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London, and I saw him give a talk once on um, 
he said something to the effect of, um, America is not 50 states. You've been raised to believe it is, but it's not. It is instead 230 socioeconomic zones. You know, these are, these are the areas where you're able to, where, where you really leave a mark just by being there, just by, exi- you know, by, by existing day to day there. Um, and they have very little in common. Um, you know, the Gulf Coast cities um, have more in common than other cities further inland in those same states, right? Yeah. Um, well, it's just like the our, like our Florida coast, you know, how it how it comes in with uh, with like next to Alabama, and then like those cities are right next to each other, but you know, there you know you just there's just some rocks separating them right. there there at the coast, and you know, other than some rocks separating them, there's not much of a difference between those two cities at all other than like we said taxes and um you know who 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 you uh who your governor is that kind of stuff right um and so you you have this weird sense of um it it just it sets up a, a very arbitrary idea of governance um that that i think is kind of pervasive and always has been, I suppose. But again, it's it's not a matter of kind; it's a matter of scale. Um, of what is what you can consider mine, what you can consider ours, yeah, um, has less to do with the people and more to do with these arbitrarily defined lines. Yeah, because um, most of the time, you know, at least here in the U.S., where you meet somebody from a different state, you know, you normally can't tell much of a difference between you and the other person. Um, you right. know, you're pretty much all the same. So, um, you know, our cultures are very, very similar and, uh, that kind of stuff. I, you said something before we started filming about, um, Memphis and about yes, how uh, I, Memphis is my favorite, favorite example of this, uh, of this idea of states are just in the way. Um, uh, Memphis co- falls into three states. You've got the Memphis of Tennessee, then you've got West Memphis in Arkansas, and then you got places like Mount Olive, Mississippi. Um, and you know, if somebody from any of that area was traveling somewhere, and someone asked where they were from, uh, unless they were just doggedly determined to be from Mississippi rather than think someone was, from, you know, have someone think they were from Tennessee, they'd tell you Memphis. Um, you know, I've, I've had people. Uh, Back to New Orleans, I've had people from like Bay St. Louis and uh, in Mississippi say they were from New Orleans, um, and it's not until you say, "Oh yeah, me too," that they start to get a little more specific because that is where they spend their money, that is where they have their jobs, that's where they have their lives. Memphis is the big city; that is kind of the the center of their orbit, um, and those state lines just are for these arbitrary things not necessarily for their livelihoods. Uh, and in a way, they sort of just get in the way um, of their socioeconomic area there. So I wonder what those 230 zones were, if he actually was just like coming up with that number. He or had a map. Oh, he had a map. Yeah. Uh, Probably around every like major city and, and yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, and, you know, major city. 
one of the places I, I lived in Louisiana. 230 is a lot, so yeah. One of the, the places I lived in Louisiana was, was in northeast Louisiana. Like three of the poorest counties in the United States are in northeast Louisiana. Um, so there's not a, The three poorest or three of the poorest? Uh, when I lived there, they, they were three of the bottom ten. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, at least two of them are definitely still there. Um, but so there wasn't a significant population center per se, but for the area, it was Monroe, or as the locals said, Monroe. Um, and we had some family coming down from DC to visit us. And we tell them, uh, my, my parents are giving them directions. Okay. You, you know, you'll go get on I-20 for what feels like your entire life. And, uh, you'll get to the big city around here, Monroe. And you'll find 165 and blah, 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 blah. They call us from Texas. They missed. They missed the entire state of Louisiana because <laughs> they drove through everywhere and they didn't see a city. Oh. So they just kept going. But for the people in northeast Louisiana, Monroe is the hub. You got a diner and a gas station. <laughs> it had a mall, I'll have you know, and oh. two movie theaters. Uh, <laughs> My bad, sorry. I underestimated. Uh, but that that was the the center of that place, uh, of that part of that state. Um, and that's, you know, even kind of reached over into Arkansas, because I have no idea what the nearest population center. You know, there was a time we, we lived in a place where we used to joke that we lived in Louisiana, our dog lived in Arkansas. Uh, <laughs> and Monroe was still it. Uh, but yeah, so so you, when you say big cities, that's a very relative term. Okay, so two hundred and thirty socioeconomic zones, right? That that it really is the United States, where m- most of the people make their money, most of the people spend their money, and and all that relates back to the immigrants and. How exactly? Well, well just that the when people are telling you if you don't like it, leave and things like that. When people are, are trying to keep someone out, the 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 uh, motivation tends to be that arbitrary. Those lines. Yeah. Ah, okay. And um, those lines really don't matter when it comes down to, you know, where we actually are as a country with all those 230 areas right. of... Okay. And, you know, another modern challenge, contemporary challenge, is we still have these zones, but we also have eyes around the world. Yes, with the internet. Right. Um, and, you know, that this is definitely a modern issue. Um, something that nothing I've talked about from the 1820s can really touch. Um, is the the concept of local and global um, has not been that that hasn't really been in the lexicon until very recently, um, and it's it's a a new challenge because um, you know uh, there is maintaining I guess balance uh, between. The concept of, of 
home the concept of kind of your sphere of influence and uh, maximize or you know maximizing your ability to reach further um, and what effect the one has on the other um, and that that kind of throws significant wrinkles into the concept or into the issue the ever-present issue of immigration um, and its motivations and its welcome. Yeah, I feel like it probably helps with um, also just kind of figuring out like where, you know, the best, best places to go and uh, to, to migrate to, you know, like I feel like that's probably a, a Googled thing is, <laughs> is, is, is like what country is best to, you know, migrate to you know, or to move to. And it makes me wonder how, you know, when we went all the way back to, you know, the, the Irish people coming in, um, how exactly they knew, you know, that it was going to be a better situation than where they were at, you know, other than maybe a couple people going and, and coming back and saying, yeah, it was pretty great there. Well, you for, know. for that time, that that's a fairly simple answer in that the 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 exchange between southern planters and english textile barons was so constant and uh ingrained even by that you know even that early um that especially when it's found out that new orleans has become american uh that was a huge deal um because you know that they had these ideas of municipal internal improvements um so you know since that they hadn't really it it was a new thing for america too that to have to take over the city that was already there for a century um and so it it, like i said it developed the the reputation of being a work depot and i think that's a pretty easy um analogy to today and the reason people make their way here a lot of the time um but yeah i guess the 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 google would have been the ship owners saying go to new orleans hop in the hole yeah <laughs> you know i feel like you know and if you're not necessarily like a ship holder or you know a um person that was going and getting the the textiles and bringing them back and you know so there was a like constant talk between those guys but you just hear about you know your irish brother who was just like oh well he left and um he didn't come back (laughs) so i'm guessing either it went really well or it didn't go great and things aren't going great here so i guess i'll uh i guess i'll hop on that train too or right boat in the sense (laughs) but proverbial train yes proverbial train (laughs) um so yeah well, um, I feel like we kind of covered everything we want to talk about. Was there anything else that you kind of wanted to get into? Oh, not particularly. Um, I think we, we've uh, pretty well... You know, th- this is not a discussion that's ever going to end. Uh, if there's anything that the study of uh, American immigration tells you, it's someone's going to have a very similar conversation in another hundred years. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Um, maybe it'll be like people moving back from Mars because right. you know they're 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 sick of the the Martian government, right? Yeah, just uh, a bunch of darn scientists and you know, Deimos first. 
Um, yeah, so it'll probably, um, like you said, just always be a conversation that goes on. And um, I think kind of just learning about, you know, where where we've stood in the past and, you know, where we're going. It kind of shows us where we're going to go and where we're going right now and how this is not a new thing. And um, just we've been able to overcome it in the past and like you said, eventually profit off of it. Mm -hmm. So, and, um, you know, you can turn what seems like a bad situation into something good as long as, you know, you keep people happy and, and keep them moving and keep them doing things. Right. So, yeah. I think that's the, the lesson to learn here today. Absolutely. And it's always a matter of choice. Like, um, and what one fantastic thing is, you know, um, the choice is not limited by popular opinion. <laughs> you know, um, I guess that's kind of the blessing, the double-edged sword of popular opinion um, is that you can still have the impact um, that you that uh, you would prefer regardless of the kind of prevailing opinions uh, and there are so many you know uh, and there are the that it is exciting and scary and but but again I maintain optimism I think that's all you can do is you know maintain optimism and um you know just keep a positive outlook and you know realize that um we'll get through it and we'll figure it out and um hopefully just make the world a better place as a whole that's the idea well i appreciate you coming on nathan i'm glad er glad everything we talked about and um really uh opened my eyes a little bit more so i hope this was a, a good start for you know bringing in guests yeah i look forward to seeing what yeah. you guys put together in the future oh totally um yeah glad you're our uh, official first guest and um set the bar real high here yeah. definitely <laughs> you did um so um thank you nathan thank you i think we'll uh we'll cut it there all right thanks for uh tuning in see you next time all right